0: Who has something on their mind?
1: Well, I have a question about, um, last night Allegra talked about the um, perfections. Yes. And one of the perfections is wisdom. Yes. So, can you give um, what you would consider, when I say the perfections, I kind of draw a blank on wisdom. What is the Buddhist... Mm perception of wisdom.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's good. Well, the perfection of wisdom, uh, actually in, in the Eightfold Path, which you're familiar with, it corresponds to uh, right view and, and right understanding. You're familiar with those, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's in the one sense, there's a uh, right view and, uh, and right understanding, as uh, the understanding of the the tenets of the Dharma, of the doctrine, of uh, uh, the uh, the four noble truths, uh, is part of right understanding, and so. The, the practice of the perfection of wisdom obviously begins with, the, with learning those uh, uh, basic uh, teachings about right, that make up right view and right understanding. And then they become more than intellectual uh, in the process of, uh, of the perfection, uh, in the process of, of, of the progress of insight, they become the purification of view, uh, the purification of overcoming doubt, uh, the purification of knowledge of what is is and is not the way, and the purification by way of knowledge and vision. And so that's sort of the middle Process of the perfection of wisdom is uh, is the the cultivation of uh, these purifications. The culmination of the perfection of wisdom is, of course, in the awakening itself, to uh, so that you have direct knowledge and experience of the uh, the ultimate truth that this is all leading to. So we start with. Truths at the level at, at the relative level and then we move through the process of correcting our way of thinking and understanding and acquiring deep insight into these same truths which involves things like the insight into the three characteristics and so forth and then it cul- culminates of course in the, in the wisdom which is the uh, the buddha knowledge that the wisdom of the Buddha mind. So what are the three characteristics? The three characteristics uh, refers to the three characteristics of all uh, phenomena or all existence, uh, different ways um, that we can translate it into English. But they are that they are all impermanent, but they are all empty of a self-nature, and that uh, that grasping to them in any way is a cause of suffering. And so that uh, the the three characteristics of phenomena are impermanence, uh, selflessness, not non-self, and uh, uh, dissatisfactoriness.
1: So when you hear um, teachings on the Prajnaparamita, is that um, a relative form of wisdom?
0: That's expressing verbally through negation the uh, the ultimate uh, truth. So the Prajnaparamita uh, sutras are sutras that express in words and in verses the ultimate truth, which cannot, it's ineffable, cannot be described. And so it's all in the negative. So in the Heart Sutra, it's, you know, uh, it's all negatives. There's no this and there's no that so forth. And so, uh, but what they are, uh, what they are is, is, uh, attempting to span they they are teachings that attempt to span the the abyss that lies between words and the conceptual mind and the reality that lies beyond both of those. Are they relative? Is that what you asked?
1: Well I'm just <clears throat> When I, when I read Prajnaparamita teachings in English, they're mm-hmm. real specific instructions. Yeah. So to me, that's relative.
0: Okay. Well, right? you're reading Prajnaparamita practice instructions. Right. Okay. Well, that's very yeah. That's because the person doing the practice is is uh, that that's relative. Uh, that's relative truth. That uh, is relative reality that you're, you're in when you're doing those practices. Yeah. So to, to practice, each of these is a perfection. So you start where you are, and you work in the process of perfection. So in the perfection of wisdom practice, you start with you where, with where you are, which is you are a being uh, filled with desire and aversion, uh, attached to a view of self, um, uh, believing in the self-existent reality of external phenomena, uh, and uh, uh, and so that's where that's where you have to start. <laughs> and and as the perfection of wisdom proceeds, then uh, you 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 begin to approach in a variety of different ways. Uh, understanding of, of ultimate truth, as opposed to relative. The interesting thing is that all these, all the things in the Buddhist teaching, you probably already noticed, they're all linked together too. They form circles. So, for example, um, Well, take the four noble truths. The truth uh, of Dukkha, and the truth of the origin of Dukkha, and the cessation of Dukkha, and the path to the cessation of Dukkha, which is the fourth. And that is the Eightfold Path. And then we look at the Eightfold Path consists of right view and right understanding. And right understanding is the four noble truths. So we've already got a circle right away in it. And all of these teachings go like over and over again. You find that they, they circle back upon themselves and that they're interconnected so that you can take, you know, as you go through the uh, uh, Eightfold Path, it takes you into the, these other things. Um, a lot of people think it's, it's funny the way Buddhism is always full of, you know, the four of this, and the five that, and the three of this, and everything else like that. But that's a very deliberate part of it. Uh, these, they're called the word in Pali and Sanskrit, it's called matika. And uh, it's actually the root for the English word matrix, but the literal meaning is list. And so the teaching was deliberately formulated in a, as a system of interconnected lists. So you could start with any list, and from it, it will eventually lead to to all of the others. So if you start with the Four Noble Truths, you know it will take you to the Eightfold Path, and eventually this is going to take you to to the the three characteristics, you know, and uh, all, all of these other lists because they're all interconnected in that way. So. Um, The same thing is true, a later list is the six perfections, but it was sort of deliberately constructed, well, it was originally constructed uh, as 10 perfections and then was later, Uh, it was a little bit of redundancy in there, so it was made down to six. But that six is constructed in such a way that it ultimately leads to the entirety of the the Dhamma, of the doctrine, That's that's taught by as as you expand each one of them and go into it because well as you know the perfection of uh, virtue takes you of course into both the precepts and into three of the uh, uh, three of the elements of the eightfold noble path so that's just you know one illustration of how they're all interconnected as as matika. In their, in their plurality creates not just lists, but a matrix. And you've probably noticed that in all the Dharma talks that you've ever listened to, how one thing is always kind of leading into another. And that's very deliberate. Well, that was a very ingenious way that, that that's constructed. So of those perfections, or of the things specifically that make up uh, uh, the perfection of wisdom, right view and right understanding and the purification of view and uh, the purification by overcoming doubt and so forth. Do any of those jump out at anyone or should I just start talking about them in general? About purification by overcoming doubt? Okay, well, now that's actually related to one of what are called the five hindrances, the fifth of which is skeptical doubt. And this is a, (laughs) this hindrance manifests in many, many ways over and over again. From the first time, that you're acquainted with the Dharma and the practice of meditation through until you achieve the uh, the first path, the path of the stream-enterer who is uh, the first stage of awakening, where the fetter of of doubt is permanently overcome. So that's an interesting one to start with. Uh, There's an interesting relationship between faith and doubt. The Buddha never expected anyone to take anything on faith in the sense that we might uh, take uh, the belief in, in God or life after death or something like that as an article of faith. Uh, but faith is very important in terms of uh, having within you uh, the confidence, the belief, the trust that, it, it, that you must have in order to successfully pursue both the study and, and the practice of the Dharma because it's not easy uh, it can be discouraging it can be be confusing and uh, there's all kinds of different ways that, that uh, doubt can insert itself so what counteracts doubt is faith in the sense of trust and confidence but not blind faith and not blind faith in the sense of uh, there being some virtue in believing something because you have been told it without being able to uh, satisfy yourself as to its actual truth. The Buddha said, don't believe anything that I say on my authority. Don't believe anything because it's written in sacred scriptures. But uh, any any teaching should be tested and uh, it should be tested based on your own experience. It it should it it should work. There's several different things. It, it should make sense to you in terms of your own experience. You should be able to test it and satisfy yourself as to its true. But of course, sometimes that takes a little while. So that's where the the where the where faith does come in is, is it's got to give you what it takes to give something a true and fair test. And what doubt does is it gets in the way of that. It, it dissuades you, it accepts it you of your energy, of your resolve, uh, uh, of the diligence that it takes to, to satisfy yourself that something is indeed uh, true or is not true. For yourself so the things that we doubt when doubt arises we we doubt ourselves and our own capability Uh, we will doubt the specific practices or teachings that we're receiving and uh, we will doubt the teacher that we're receiving them from Course, we can doubt the the truth of the Dharma and the tenets of the Dharma as a whole. So the, these are the targets of doubt in our mind doubt and uncertainty. And whenever doubt arises, of course, it, it feeds the other hindrances. When doubt is present, it will quickly lead to procrastination, lethargy, laziness, uh, a lack of uh, energy and resolve to pursue the practice. And then uh, it will also lead to thoughts of other things that might be more rewarding and more satisfying. Say, better uses of our time and energy, or at least more immediately attractive and appealing uses of our time and, and energy. So, when doubt arises, it brings uh, a, a, it brings a hindrance of uh, procrastination and lethargy. That's often presented in, the, uh, in things you read of sloth and torpor, which a couple of very Victorian terms, which are terrible terms. <laughs> Sloth is one of the seven deadly sins. And as a matter of fact, it has hardly any other clear definition in the English language other than being one of the seven deadly sins. <laughs> but it's also uh, the, the name of a, of a South American animal that hangs by its feet from the branches of trees in each sense. <laughs> uh, and, and, and torpor, you know, you have this. So, but there is there is a, a procrastination. We could call it laziness too, which is laziness is is uh, accurate in a sense, but has a certain, a certain pejorative flavor to it that we probably. Uh, don't need to impose upon ourselves. So that's why I like procrastination. Even if
1: we are really lazy. <laughs> Pro- procrastination.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Even if you are really lazy. If it helps for you to think of it as laziness, then you should. <laughs> but, uh, so I like procrastination. And likewise, you know, rather than torpor, uh, lethargy or something that, that, that denotes that the lack of energy and enthusiasm, which can lead to the feeling of fatigue and tiredness and boredom and falling asleep. So doubt yeah. opens you up to these things. As a matter of fact, when these things are present, for uh, you, you could always look to see if doubt is any part of what has caused them to be there might not be. Of course, they can always arise on their own for their own reasons, but but doubt can lead to them. And, of course, what is doubt in the mind? Basically, you're engaged in an activity or, or a process, and uh, it is our nature that uh, we have some Expectation of a reward or of accomplishment or some kind of fruits of that, and doubt is sort of the built-in uh, mechanism that keeps us from wasting our time too much in fruitless activities. So that when something, when we've been doing something for a while without a payoff, then the, the doubt mechanism turns on and begins to investigate the whole proposition to make sure that you're not just wasting your time. So in that sense, it's kind of a good thing. You know, uh, and as a matter of fact, doubt is, is, is very healthy. Because it, it's healthy in the sense that it brings you to examine, to question, to investigate, you know, to evaluate. Where it's a bad thing, though, is where it's just an emotional state that, uh, that robs you of your resolve to continue in the activity. Or worse yet, gets you in these endless little cycles of the mind where you're just, you know, it's like a dog chasing its tail, where you keep cycling the same useless and unproductive thoughts over and over again, and you're caught in a loop of, of uncertainty. Which the only way you can get out of is to come to a point where you can evaluate whatever process you're engaged in and say, well, I've really given this my best shot for what seems like more than a reasonable amount of time, and it hasn't paid off, so it's time to look at something else. So doubt can do that, and that's a good thing for doubt to do. but you ha- it's, it's only a good thing if you've done that, if you have, if you have been diligently pursuing the process and you've put a reasonable amount of, of time and effort and energy into it, then you can say for sure that uh, the, the doubt is serving useful purpose by causing you to reflect and examine. But doubt is always going to arise when you're making demands upon yourself of any kind, and uh, you're not getting, and you're not getting a, a payoff that you can understand clearly, so this is—it uh, has to be dealt with. And of course, we're capable of overcoming doubt; otherwise, we would never get uh, anywhere. Well, there's some people who aren't very good at overcoming doubt. We know those people. We've all met those kinds of people that no matter what they do, they begin to doubt themselves or what they're doing after a period of time and they become paralyzed by it, right? So that's uh, it's just one of those common examples in the world of how a, a, a mental mechanism which could otherwise be uh, useful and beneficial can can be very destructive if it's, uh, if it's out of control. And so there's a recognition of that fact in, uh, in, in acknowledging doubt as a hindrance and seeing the role that it plays. Healthy, there's healthy doubt and a skeptical doubt. Well, that may not be a, a clear translation into English. Because skeptical doubt, you can be a healthy skeptic. The kind of doubt that is unwholesome and that's a problem, or doubt becomes a problem when it begins to be a kind of faith of its own, when it begins to be the faith that this is not going to work, or that I can't do it, or that sort of thing. it comes up over and over again. It comes up when you first decided to learn to meditate, and it seemed like you weren't having much progress. You experienced doubt. And you probably experienced doubt in, in it directed at uh, several of its different possible targets, that, that, well, it's me. It's just the kind of person I am. Other people can do this, but maybe I can't or it may have been directed at at that to practice. And a lot of people, when they start to meditate, will try several different practices. But by now, you already know that the solution to doubt is to give it a good try. And of course, you've done that meditation, and you've enjoyed some success. And then, of course, as you go along, uh, and you, you come to the next, uh, next stage or the next hurdle or the next plateau or whatever it is, and doubt begins to emerge again, you can call upon your uh, your success in the past to help give you the, the confidence that you need to proceed. Of course, you can look around you at other people, and you can draw confidence from that. And you can also use your own... Uh, growing wisdom to recognize that the only way that you can determine whether it's gonna work or not is to give it your seriously best shot. and So that's how we deal with doubt. As a matter of fact, the antidote of doubt is said to be a sustained effort. Which is pretty much the, the exact Opposite of what doubt is itself, which is is uh, its interrupted effort, its, uh, its, its its inhibited effort, and so sustained effort overcomes uh, interrupted effort. To overcome doubt in practice is to. Do the practice diligently, and experience the arising of the the results as as you continue through time. To overcome doubt in terms of the teachings uh, is to examine them carefully, uh, and uh, if you have trouble understanding them, to seek some kind of explanation that that resolves the difficulty. And I'll tell you one thing about intellectually understanding the Dharma, and this is the same thing that I used to tell my science students, anatomy students and physiology students and neurology students when I taught, is that, if you've tried your best to understand something and it still doesn't make sense to you, then there's probably something wrong with the way you're trying to put it together. There's some important piece of information that you've got backwards, for example. And when you identify what that is and flip it around the right way, all the pieces of the puzzle will fit. Or sometimes it's because there's a piece missing. That uh, if, if something is, is, Comprehensible, then it's comprehensible to to all of us. And um, there's a physicist once I can't remember who it was. Oh, who?
2: Occam's
0: Razor. No, no. This is. He said uh, Occam was a medieval philosopher. But I really like Occam's Razor. I shave my mind with it all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, this is, this is a modern physicist. He said that that uh, uh, if if you if, if you can't explain this to a child, you don't understand it yourself. And I think that's really true. You know. So uh, sometimes there's a lot of. Of information that has to be methodically built up over time to understand something, so you know for you to open a book on uh, quantum physics and understand what that page says the, uh, uh, there would have you would of course have to have gone through the process of of cumulatively learning the pieces but If you had done that, you would be able to understand everything on the page. Maybe that's not the best example because actually there are some people who probably aren't going to master certain mathematical ideas in their lifetime. (laughs) You could take another example, would be, say, medical texts. And I think, you know, they don't usually involve any any kind of mental skills like advanced mathematics that some people are especially gifted in and other people don't have at all. You go open any page of a medical text uh, or a physiology book. And if you learned it, the necessary background material, you could understand everything on that page. And I can say with confidence, there's no part of the necessary background material that just about anybody couldn't learn is it's you know what makes it difficult when you first look at it is you don't have the background but piece by piece it's all easily assimilated and understood so in learning these seemingly very complex and confusing teachings If you, if you get all the pieces together in the right way, they should cease to be confusing. And you can overcome doubt through the application of reason and understanding. You can overcome doubt in terms of the, the system saying something that's comprehensible. Now, in terms of what it says, for example, the system says you don't have the self that you think you have, or things are empty. Okay, You can completely understand intellectually the hypothesis there without being able to engage that as a reality. So in order to overcome doubt at that level, uh, It means that you have to have direct experience that confirms the things that you're trying to understand. And of course, here's where all the different strands come together, because you have to have the practice, uh, you have to have the theoretical understanding, uh, and then this will give rise to the direct experience, and then that doubt, too, will be overcome the fetter of doubt that's overcome when a person experiences awakening, when uh, the, uh, uh, the attachment to the view of personal self is eradicated, and the uh, uh, emptiness of formations is directly experienced, that experience removes doubt in all of these issues of dharma, that before you had to more or less accept yeah. on on faith and trust, and so this is how the process of, of uh, overcoming doubt works, at least in the context of Buddhism. So I think it's pretty much universally too true too, too of, of everything. But in the, uh, I, I did mention that there is, in the progress of insight, there's a particular uh, part of that that's referred to specifically as the purification by overcoming doubt. And that is preceded by the, the uh, purification of view. And they are very directly connected. you have to, they work in sequence. You have to have a purification of view before you can achieve the uh, intellectual and uh, intuitive purification by overcoming doubt with regard to these uh, what are considered the most fundamental uh, insights that are required in, on this particular spiritual path. The three, the three characteristics are example of that. Impermanence, emptiness, selflessness, uh, and suffering. So, this is a very good thing for us to talk about, purification of view, what that means. And I've, I've touched on it uh, in previous talks uh, during this retreat. We normally think that we are a particular kind of thing, a self, in a world of other kinds of things. And the Process of purification of view is to change that perspective so that first of all that we see ourselves as a series of experiences. You are a series of experiences and. In making that shift, what you're doing is you're recognizing that the appearance of being a self in a world of things is actually a mental construct. But you can discover and overcome doubt and satisfy yourself that, indeed, a more accurate description of the the only reality you've ever known, of every reality that you've ever known, its far more accurate description is that you are a series of experiences. Can you all see that? So this is this is the very beginning of right view, is we'll drop we'll drop the other way of looking at things and realize that, well, all there has been is a series of experiences. And these experiences are causally connected. So they create a sequence. And E and the experiences are related to each other in a causal way. And as a being, as a human being, uh, you can think of yourself in this present moment. The present is. This experience that's standing at the top of all these experiences that conditioned it and led up to it, where are you here in this place, doing what you're doing, hearing what you're hearing, everything else? It's a result of all of those preceding experiences. So when we realize that reality is experience. And so here we are. We're in an experience right now. And what does this reality consist of? If you examine it carefully, and this is this is what your meditation uh, helps you to see, is that in any given present moment, there is consciousness and there is some object of consciousness. And that is what reality consists of in the moment. And in any given present moment, the object of consciousness will be of two types. And here we is that distinction. uh, We start off, it's really easy for us to divide the universe into the material and the mental. That which uh, we can feel and taste and touch, and that which we can only know uh, within our minds. That which is dependent upon the senses, and that which is on the five physical senses, and that which is known by means of the mind sense. And other ways that you can think of the same division of Objects of consciousness is that they are external and they are internal; uh, that they are self and other. There's all kinds of different ways that you can make this, this, this uh, distinction, but um, let's just stick with the the mental and the material for a moment, and we are all, I'm sure, absolutely clear. But yes, you can account for all possible objects of experience are either mental in nature or they relate in some way to the material, to the physical, right? And then we examine this a little more closely and we realize that we never have any experience of the presumed physical reality directly, we only know it by virtue of the sensations that we experience. And You can all probably agree with me with this. this is the part where you may start to experience doubt as we go beyond this, but it's easy to resolve that doubt through careful examination to satisfy yourself, but it's true. Okay, so when you close your eyes, the dominant sense is vision, so when you close your eyes and meditate, it's it, it's a lot easier to satisfy yourself. that, As a matter of fact, moment by moment, as your experience as this sequence of causally related experiences unfolds, moment by moment, the objects of your consciousness are either sensations or they are the other kinds of mental objects, the more obvious kinds of mental objects, such as, uh, as, as feelings, thoughts, memories, uh, emotions, uh, mental images as opposed to visual images, uh, recollected sound or words heard in the mind as opposed to sounds and words heard with the ears so forth, right? So we've got a, a, quite a range there of, of, of different uh, mental objects. Well, not so much. Just thoughts, memories, uh, images, uh, emotions, so forth. And the sensations. And so now you start to, now you can start to benefit from this developing right view, this accurate view. It's more, this more well, yes, it's it's a more accurate view. It's a more real uh, view of what you are. And so there are sensations and then there are, are, are mental objects. And you look at the dance, the interaction between these. So you hear a sound and your mind associates the sound with a kind of object. And you realize that it associates that sound with a kind of object due to past experience that involved other senses at other times. And so you, you can see how your mind creates within itself a world of objects, but that you have no direct contact with that world of objects. And really, the only way, the only thing that validates your mind's assumption about the way those objects are, is if you are able to, repeat it, to experience them repeatedly in the same way. So here's another interesting thing about this. Okay, so being is experience, or being is experiencing, and reality is what you experience. And we start to recognize that what we are experiencing are sensations and then mental formations to account for the sensations. So we think back to the way that we normally perceive the world. We think about things as existing. You know, let's say that this this exists and that what that word means, exists, uh, it, it means to stand outside of. That's what it means in Latin. And specifically what it means is to stand outside of the mind. So when we say this exists, we're making a proposition that just stands outside of the mind. And if I thought I saw the ghost of my grandfather and I looked again and it wasn't there, I would say it doesn't exist. It doesn't stand outside of the mind. But this bowl, every time I experience it, I experience it the same way. And so I infer that it exists. So, reality is what we experience, and existence is what the mind infers. It's purely inference. And so, we start to develop right view by pursuing this. We examine the sensations that are the basis for all of our minds' inferences, and we find that they're constantly changing. We examine the formations of our mind that are based on those uh, sensations, and we find that they're constantly changing too. Uh, this won't always be here. Someday I could come in here, and it will be gone. There's all kinds of different ways that it could cease to be here. but. Someday it might no longer be there. And this is indeed uh, the nature of absolutely everything that the mind creates its inferences about. That although it may, uh, it, it, it may satisfy for some period of time uh, <clears throat> the appearance of being an enduring entity Everything eventually passes away. Everything eventually ceases to be there. So, so we can recognize that everything is impermanent. Uh, we can examine, we can examine the succession of mental states as they occur and see the relationship between them. Reality constantly changes. A uh, fly lands on my head, that's a sensation. I identify it as a fly, that's a perception, that's a a mental object. Uh, The sensation is unpleasant, it produces a a, a tickling, and I don't like the the feeling. And so uh, there arises, and that's another mental object, the the feeling is a mental object, so a sensation that led to one kind of mental object, the perception of the fly, and also another kind of mental object, an unpleasant feeling. And then yet another mental object arises, which is the uh, impulse and the intention to get rid of the fly. And here's an interesting thing that you have to actually examine, because it's something that we manage to live our lives without noticing too well, or even we know it, but we don't really know it. And that's that <clears throat> all that ever happened was that the intention arose to brush the fly off the forehead. And then the sensations of the arm moving occurred. And then other sensations of the hand brushing the fly away occurred. And we fill that in we say, oh, I brushed the fly off my head. But when we examine closely, if we find that, no, just as the initial sensation of a fly led to a whole train of mental objects, so does a kind of mental object and intention lead to a whole series of sensations. And so there is this interplay, this dance, between nama and rupa, between sensation and, and, and mental phenomena. And we see that it's all causally related. And when we examine this, we can, we can examine phenomena as they occur, experiences as they unfold, one right after another. And that we can see when certain things happen, that the perceptions that we have are based on our cumulative past experience. And the kind of feelings that they arouse in us are likewise based on our past conditioning. And that the impulses and intentions that arise are also based on our past conditioning. (coughs) So this is where we begin to see that reality as experience, as a series of of causally connected experiences, starts to become really obvious. Now all of this is, none of this is difficult to understand, right? Anybody have trouble following any of this? I don't think so. Nobody really would.
2: Yeah? <laughs> you did? Yeah? yeah?
1: But you also have the physical, actual movement of mm-hmm. the arm
0: yeah.
1: to the forehead.
0: Yes. Yeah. I
1: mean, you, the of,
0: you had the sensation of the, of the
1: movement and the sensation of the hands. <coughs> Fingers on the mm-hmm. forehead. Yeah. But you also had the mo- some physical
0: movement of some physical well, entity.
1: Well, okay. I mean, not an unchanging
0: and permanent entity, but still, still a physical. Okay, entity. but let's look at this. what you had is the sensations. Uh, and if your eyes were closed, they may have been only bodily sensations. But if your eyes were open, they would have been both bodily and visual. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. you only had the sensations of the arm moving up to your your forehead to brush away the fly. Your mind inferred that there actually existed an arm and that the arm actually moved. Because have you ever had a dream that you've done something? Of course you have. Um, But you know, in fact, that the bodily parts that moved in the dream didn't actually move. this other in the inferred reality. Right. So, yes, yeah. uh, that's good. That's a wonderful example, wonderful question. That's why I say we're coming kind to of this point. These things are really easy to understand, but we need to really get into them. To really we can think we understand them before we really understand them. And you need to keep going back and examining them more and more closely. <coughs> and this is the process of. Overcoming doubt is basically to keep having direct experiences that confirm and distinguish between what uh, what 's being proposed and our normal way of of thinking of things so i don 't know did I satisfy you on that one but
1: well i but I think your arm exists right
0: well, you know. There, That's,
1: that would be relative reality, right?
0: That, arm, would, that would be what? That
1: would be relative reality, in, I mean, We would or say, or
0: in relative reality, things? your arm exists. Right. right? And we're starting from relative reality where we have... As we do not doubt or question at all for a moment that your arm exists. And it exists exactly the way it looks and feels to us. That's relative reality. And what we're doing is just, we're coming to the point of saying, well, at, at some point what you, what you will discover in the process of, of developing right view and then by overcoming doubt, you'll come to the point that you'll know with a certainty that there is no way for you to ever know for sure that your arm exists or not. But if you've been doing enough exploration, what you will know for certain is that your arm does not exist the way it appears to you. That's what's interesting oh. about it. Okay? There is nev- there's no way in this process of, of investigation and, and, and rational evaluation that you can come to a point and say with certainty, there definitely exists something outside of my mind corresponding to arm.
1: It definitely
2: exists outside
1: of our
0: minds. <laughs> <laughs> Only in his mind and your mind. <laughs> So anyway, I I don't need to, I I don't think we need to go into this in detail, but I I think anybody who wants to truly understand this teaching does need to think about it and explore it. But I'll tell you that just using, absolutely not suggesting, absolutely not suggesting at all that reality is a dream which is a facile and easy way to oversimplify things. But if you compare the two states that we have of dreaming and waking, although it can become obvious that something's a dream, you can be certain that something's a dream, you can never be absolutely certain that everything's not a dream. Right? So you can just use these two very common ordinary mental states to satisfy yourself at least the possibility that perhaps there is no such thing as an arm and and I'll tell you what you'll end up with when you when you pursue it as far as you can possibly go experientially or intellectually either way or both is that you can never with certainty either affirm or deny that there exists something outside of your mind corresponding to your arm because it could just be a dream but if you if you once you have cultivated and applied <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: once you cultivate and apply right view and the application is is important you've got to keep thinking in terms of I am a series of experiences consisting of sensation and mental formations
2: and observe
0: the interaction between the sensations and the mental formations, you will find all kinds of circumstances in which you would have to say, if there does exist something outside of my mind corresponding to the objects that my mind proposes to account for sensations, that with certainty it is not the way it appears to be in in my mind. Some, well, some some, some things that are obvious and and easy. uh, We see another person in a particular way and we are certain that that person is the way that we see them, and then subsequently something will happen, and we'll realize that they are not that way at all. This is a common experience everyone's had, right? So there's all kinds of examples. Like when we get past the level of things like this, where. Uh, there's a very high level of consistency of our experiencing and re-experiencing of the same object, when we get to more complex levels of, of being, that we uh, entities that we interact with, like other people, or whole situations, we find that they are very... Uh, that, that there's a huge element of... Uh, Uncertainty in in our perceptions, and we see that two people in the same circumstance, uh, one's happy and one's miserable. You know, so they're living in different realities, although there's the same, the the purported external objects are all the same. And somebody likes the taste of uh, one food and somebody doesn't, and so, you know, there there is a level beyond which, in our experience, we begin to. To recognize that all of our life is is filled with experiences where things are not the way they appear to us to be. When we carry this to a further level, we find that there's no bottom to this process. And even with this, as I know that you know, this seems solid, it, but it's not solid, right? It's ninety-nine point. I don't know how many decimal nines uh, of its volume is completely empty space. And as a matter of fact, even the pursuit of small objects scattered in this empty space to create the illusion of solidity, when pursued uh, scientifically, with Find that those that those tiny objects disappear as well. Relativity theory turns those tiny objects into curvatures of space time, and uh, other fields of physics find them to be total. They are imaginary points uh, from which the uh, field, the the force fields of the uh, of the four different kinds of... uh, I don't need to get into physics. Anyway,
2: they correspond to imaginary
0: points that mathematically define the origin of fields. So, you know, the solidity of this, even by virtue of of science, disappears. So, if, if you sincerely pursue this kind of investigation... You will satisfy yourself intellectually that that absolutely nothing is from its own side the way it appears to you in your mind. And that's even assuming that there is something outside of your mind to account for the sensations out of which your, your mind built the appearance of the object in the first place. That is very interesting, isn't it? It has all kinds of consequences for everything else. I mean, I could go on this for a long time, but this develops into a very complete understanding of emptiness. Um, and it changes your life. And it changes, uh, and it changes your life. It also is the basis for... Understanding the four noble truths—that uh, the, the truth of dukkha, that life is uh, filled with dissatisfaction, uh, and pain, and suffering—but that, that this dukkha is of two types. There's dukkha-dukkha that is that originates with the senses when there's a sensation. And then there is another kind of dukkha, Domanasa dukkha, which is or originates in the mind, and which we would call suffering or grief or the, the mental uh, the mental form of unpleasantness. So, and so as we go through life, experiencing things as unpleasant. The sensations that are unpleasant are inevitably a part of human existence. But the suffering that's generated by the mind in response to the sensations, that is empty. So we have the object that seems to cause our pain is empty, we don't know it's real nature, but reality, remember being is experience is reality, the reality is there's pain, okay? But the next moment of experience is there's not only pain but there's suffering, and that suffering is completely a mental creation, and it's completely empty. And this means that if we can understand the origin of suffering, the second truth, then we can bring about the cessation of suffering through bringing about the cessation of that which leads to suffering. And then what we're left with is that although pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And that changes your life, too. Right view, if we continued right view, and remember all the matika interconnect, so we started pursuing uh, Nama and and, and Rupa, and uh, we saw that it could lead us to uh, various, it could lead us into understanding of emptiness, it can lead us into understanding of suffering. It can lead us into understanding of no self. It can lead us into all of these different understandings. So, in the in the purification of view, we can intellectually and to, agree, to a degree, intuitively uh, tap all of these matikas. And then the next process is through direct experience, through constantly testing these things that we've learned. So take, for example, the when, when we come to really understand emptiness, then we test the emptiness against our experience over and over again, until there comes, we come to have a very, very deep and profound understanding of it. We test impermanence against experience until it becomes until we eradicate the appearance in our mind of, of permanence, or not of permanence, but of the enduring quality or of thingness. This is really the opposite of impermanence, is that everything is, is, is thingness. And so the realization of impermanence is to realize that there's only processes taking place, that continual changes, there's only processes. And so when this is understood, it can be applied, and through its application, we have a direct experience of that truth. And that is how doubt is overcome, through the constant application. Meditation is a very special laboratory in which to test all of these ideas, because we calm down the activity of the mind. We learn to focus the mind. We increase the power of mindfulness. And then we turn the focused, powerful mind, the conscious awareness, on experiences as they unfold and, and in this way penetrate beyond the, the illusions that uh, we've been working our way towards dispelling. In meditation, you will have direct experience of impermanence that everything is on process. And in meditation, you'll have a direct experience of, of emptiness. Everybody has a direct experience of emptiness all the time. They just didn't realize what it was. that was happening to them, always. And you will experience that the self that you think you are is a mental construct that comes up from time to time, and every time it comes up, it's different than every other time. It's never twice the same. It, it too, is a process. And in meditation, you'll have direct experiences of when the mind clings to the mental construct of self, it immediately produces a sensation of discomfort.
1: So do you think that what we're what we are doing is sort of a um, controlled because there actually is um, pain involved. You're right; it's not easy. So, or and then to avoid the suffering, you're you're learning to focus your mind, mm-hmm. and then. So is it sort of like a controlled nervous breakdown like you see that you're that you're not who you I mean is have you ever thought of it like that?
0: Well, uh, yes I have. There are ways of practicing which do produce what you might call a controlled nervous breakdown.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but
0: there are other ways of practicing which I prefer which produce more of a Controlled liberation—that you're like. You remember in Gulliver's Travel? he woke up and he's—he's he's tied, you know, all these little tiny ropes, and he can't move anything. You know, I, I'd rather—I'd rather, I'd rather uh, recommend you follow the path that's like having all those little ropes that bind you being cut one by one until you're finally free. <laughs>
1: okay, so you see it.
0: You can—you can do it in a in a cataclysmic way. <laughs>
1: but it, it can be cataclysmic.
0: And and it can be, uh, it can be more cataclysmic for some people than it is for others. Uh, as a matter of fact, the more attached you are to your sense of self, the more cataclysmic, cataclysmic it's going to be, <laughs> no matter which process you follow. Right. Right. Yeah. And the hardest thing of all, about giving up your attachment to self is realize that you're not giving up anything at all. It's just an illusion. You know? There's you're so, you, there's some part of your mind that's so afraid of losing this precious self that never existed anyway. You know, It's even worse than the emperor's new clothes. <laughs> but that's what's liberating about it. And you see, what is what can be very disturbing to people is when they realize the impermanence and the suffering, Uh, and intellectually they realize that, uh, that the self that they cling to doesn't really exist, but if emotionally they're still clinging to a self, then what happens is they have the experience of being a self in a world of impermanence that spells nothing but suffering and being subject to imminent annihilation. I mean, what could be worse? I mean, that's that's hell. The the, the earth is melting beneath your feet. There is no solidity, of permanence anywhere. There's nothing to cling to. And anything that you do cling to burns, hurts, you know. And anything you try to cling to for safety is covered with razor blades or is red hot, you know. So this this is what it means to recognize the truth of impermanence and the truth of suffering, and still be clinging to the notion of self. You are a self in this hell of of, of dissolution and pain. And you've already seen. That the self that you're clinging to, uh, to some degree, you intellectually confront it's unreality, which produces a fear, like it produces the fear of death, the fear of loss, you know. So a person that's clinging to self, yeah, it's very cataclysmic, very traumatic, and it's, uh, it is a hopefully controlled nervous breakdown that, that they finally let go. But you don't have to go that way. You don't have to go that way. Fill the mind with joy and tranquility and equanimity. And confront these truths over and over again from a place of acceptance until you can get beyond attachment and clinging. And then all that you find on the other side of that is, is freedom, liberation, which I think I'll tell you one last thing, and then we'll call it a night. Can
1: I ask a question? Yes. So, with the antidote to that fear, it sounds like the clinging is because of the fear of letting
0: go. Um, And so, I'm wondering about whether the antidote to the fear would be compassion for yourself. Yes, that's... if, If you can... If you can... Have compassion. If, if compassion can arise, you know th- this is all the mind doing it to itself. So the, your your mind is generating fear, and then your mind is miserable wallowing in its own fear that it generated. So if you can cause your mind to generate compassion instead, uh, then you you've solved the problem. As a matter of fact, for meditators who are going through that kind of cataclysmic breakdown experience, what we tell them to do is do. Do loving kindness meditation, direct it to other people, and then when you get it, you know, when it's really strong, then come back and, 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 and direct it towards yourself. And it's very healing, very good in that way. Thank you. That's what I
1: thought, because you can't tell yourself, don't be afraid. That doesn't work. You That's know right. what I mean? So, yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. okay. Thanks. Last thing I wanted to tell you about is <coughs> nirvana. Nirvana means uh, it literally means putting out a fire. Quenching a fire. And it refers to the liberation from delusion and suffering. Now you could easily misunderstand this and it starts sounding like annihilation. I mean, you've already been wrestling with <clears throat> uh, this idea that that yourself is an illusion and that you might lose something that you thought you had. And then you're told that, that uh, the liberation from suffering and delusion is nirvana, which is like the blowing out of a candle or the extinguishing of a fire, this could be a real, you know, I don't think I want to go there quick, take me to the bar kind of situation. (laughs) Right? And I have to admit, for a long time, I, you know, I was really unhappy with the word nirvana, and the books that I would read, that would say, you know, and interestingly, if you read Buddhist books, what they'll do is on the one hand they'll tell you these things, and then on the next page they'll assure you, but nirvana is not annihilation, but they won't be able to tell you why it's not, because they sure made it sound like they was. <laughs> And uh, this, is, this is kind of an example. You know, I was saying when you're trying to learn something, you're trying to understand something, and if you just can't figure it out, it just doesn't make sense, there's probably something wrong with the process by which you're trying to figure it out. And I discovered that that is indeed the case when I started learning more about the historical and cultural and philosophical background to Buddhism. At the time of the Buddha, and actually for probably two thousand years before the time of the Buddha, probably going back twenty-five hundred years BC. Uh, in the time of the Buddha, the view of fire and what happens when fire goes out, the the philosophical and scientific understanding of what happens when you extinguish a flame is totally different than what we see. Fire is one of the elements. Uh, If you include space, there's five elements. Without space, there's earth, air, fire, and water. The fire is one of the four elements out of which everything is composed. And in the... uh, you know, what would you, the, the science of the time said that when you had a piece of wood that was burning, then the fire element, or the heat element, the heat element was bound to the fuel, or attached to the fuel. And that when you put the fire out, The element cannot be destroyed. The heat element is eternal. And the heat element is also everywhere. It pervades the entire universe. So when you have a burning piece of wood, you have trapped heat element attached to the fuel. And when you put it out, you liberate the heat element, which returns to its natural state of occupying the the wholeness of... Everything, everywhere. Okay? So, whereas we would put out a fire and it seems that it is extinguished, it is destroyed, it ceases to exist, it is no longer. It has been, in terms of our science, reduced to its component parts. There is only the soot and smoke particles in the air, the, the cold, charred piece of fuel, and the CO2 and other gases that are dispersed. So it is annihilated and destroyed. But this was not what was meant at the time of the Buddha. When you put out a fire, what you were doing is liberating the heat element, which returned to its natural state. A very different way of looking at things. And the word in uh, the uh, sequence of the word in Buddhist in in the Dharma that is refers to clinging and attachment uh, is upadana and the meaning of upadana the most the oldest and most literal meaning of upadana is fuel and in the Dharma we talk about because of craving we are attached and the continuation of the delusion that we are a separate self is because of the attachment, upadana, to the, the five aggregates. We are attached to the five aggregates and in the, in the Buddha's teaching. And the Buddha's own words, when he taught about this, he referred to them as, uh, as the... Upadanakanda, which is translated in most English writings and almost universally in English, except for a few things that I've seen written in just the last couple of years, as the aggregates of clinging. But in a sentence in Pali at the time of the Buddhist teaching, it would have been understood to mean bundle of fuel. So the five aggregates, and the upadana, in association with the five aggregates, is part of the same metaphor of nirvana as the heat element. And so when we become liberated, when we we overcome the delusion that we are a separate self, This destroys the upadana. This destroys, which means both attachment and fuel. It destroys the attachment and the fuel at the same time. And so the mind is like fire unbound. And that's the meaning of nirvana. Nirvana, in the original context, of the language of the time, the word nirvana refers to the mind like fire unbound. Not an annihilation, but a total liberation.
2: Um, I've heard a couple of things, and I've wondered a couple of things about the, um, the metaphor of fire uh, being used. Uh, one, one thing I heard was, you know, it seems strange to us. Most of us come from northern and if you s- turn the fire out or get rid of the fire, it's really cold. Right. But in India, it's pretty warm, and so getting, you know, having the fire go out is not such yeah. a dangerous thing. But also, the whole Vedic, you know, the whole, um, uh, Farsi, you know, the 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 worship prior to the Buddha, up to the time of the Buddha, was all fire based. Yes, so, that's right. It was all <laughs> fire based, and. Yeah. The fact that in uh, Buddhism, the fire, nibbana uh, m- m- or liberation, is also the fire going out, it it's, it makes that con concept much larger. It's mm-hmm. like saying, okay, these old ways of uh, belief yeah. are now extinguished. And That's exactly finished. right.
0: That's exactly what he was saying. You're, you know, and I've loved some of the stuff I've been reading recently. Uh, it's just so rich in that, giving the cultural context. And so much of the Buddha's teaching, he was constantly satirizing the Brahmanical belief systems of the time, in one form or another. And the members of the Brahman caste, every male Brahman, after a certain point in his life, was responsible for keeping three flames going. That, that, you're absolutely right. It's, it was to the extent that every individual brahmin had to keep these three, three flames going. If they ever went out, you know, it uh, could be a really serious problem. right? And here was the Buddha talking about putting the flames out, and really, in many ways, he was. What he was saying is, you know, he he was, saying throw away that that. That uh, um, sacrifice-based ritualized religion that you've been clinging to—it has—it has no value, no basis anymore. So, yeah. Yeah,
2: it's also the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, right? That are
0: extinguished. Yeah. So yeah, the fires of greed, and and he he did refer to uh, uh, you know one one of his famous uh, teachings is called the fire sermon, where he said that you know everything's on fire. Yeah. And that's what it's on fire with. It's on fire with greed, hatred, and delusion. And so, of course, all these teachings are... Uh, the other, they're manticas, but the other thing about them is that they're also all interlocked metaphors as well. So, when you grasp to something that's on fire, it burns you. And so, grasping to that which is, is impermanent and without self-nature is the result. Uh, always results in suffering. And so this is another metaphor that comes up. Everything is on fire. If you grasp onto that which is on fire, you will only get burned.